1: Hello and a very warm welcome to another episode of the well Wellbeing Show, the podcast that brings trusted wellness wisdom across the global airwaves each and every week. Now, if you are listening to this episode live in September 2022, then you will know that it's been a week of great sadness and reflection here in the UK after the passing of Queen Elizabeth II, our longest-serving monarch. Hers was a life dedicated to service, and her passing is such a great loss to so many of us. And like many, I've been deeply saddened by the news and would like to send most sincere sympathy and condolences to Her Majesty's family, alongside those of my entire wellbeing team here. Well, with the funeral fast approaching, I know that many of us will be taking this week a little slower, pausing to mourn and reflect. And with this in mind, I've decided to take a break in our regular publishing schedule. And this week we are running an archive episode where I spoke to the talented psychotherapist, journalist and former documentary filmmaker, Sasha Bates, all about grief. We mourn the death of Queen Elizabeth II, but I know that this loss will also remind many of other losses in their life, whether it be spouses, close friends, parents or other family members. And in today's interview, Sasha shares her experience of losing her partner Bill unexpectedly at the age of 56. She describes this experience in her brilliant book, Languages of Loss, writing, I lost my partner, my best friend, lover, soulmate, companion. And I also lost my future. I lost a huge chunk of myself. I lost the ground beneath my feet. I lost hope. I lost the will to live. Well, she shares an honest account of her experience with grief, as well as what she's learned along the way. And it's my hope that her hard fought wisdom will provide comfort and guidance to all who are mourning this week, as well as practical ways that we can support others who grieve. So I hope that you can settle back now to enjoy this week's listen, perhaps in a slightly more reflective mood here than usual. Let's hear from Sasha. So, Sasha, really warm welcome to my podcast. It's so lovely to have you with us. Thank you. Can we start off by talking about Bill? How did you meet him?
2: We actually met on a Greek island where we'd both gone on holiday separately, alone, and we met there, became instant friends. And when we got home, we realised we actually knew about six people in common. So all these people (laughs) could have introduced us back in London. None of them ever did. Yeah. Yeah, massive coincidence. So it did sort of feel meant to be right place, right time, all of that. Meant to
1: be. And how would you describe him to those who hadn't met him?
2: Oh, he was fabulous. He was a really big personality. He had incredible humor and wit, very deadpan. You'd think he was just this sort of quiet, unassuming man sitting in the corner, not paying any attention. And then he'd just suddenly cut in with with something very operbic and hilarious and make you realize that all this time he'd been clocking everything that was going on. And then Mm -hmm. observational humor based on what he'd noticed. So he was very warm, very generous, very funny, very clever, very quick. Um
1: yeah. yeah. I mean any bereavement obviously is just such a shock and so difficult. But Bill's death was particularly sudden, wasn't it? What happened?
2: Yeah, I mean he was fit, he was fifty-six, he was training for his third marathon, he's vegetarian, <laughs> he didn't drink much, he didn't smoke fighting fit, so we thought. And then one day clutched his heart in agony and rushed to the hospital, got diagnosed with what I now know is an aortic dissection, which is something I've never heard of, which is where your aorta can just split. And it turns out that it's something that it's almost impossible to know that you Got a weak aorta, almost impossible to know that this can happen. There's no signs. The only thing that occasionally people know that they're at risk of it is that if they have high blood pressure, which he didn't have. So yeah, completely came out of the blue. Had heart surgery that day. Thought it was all going to be fine. Next day, realised that whilst the aorta had been split and the blood had been kind of cascading around his body, it had caused a blood clot, which then ultimately starved the oxygen to his brain. So the next day. I was told that, that that it was all over, and so yeah, absolutely ruffled out from underneath.
1: What a roller coaster! Forty eight hours that you you must have gone through, from you know deep despair to hope and joy to despair, and you know ultimately having to face the worst news. What shape then did your grief take in in the weeks and the months that followed Bill's death?
2: Well, I think because it was a very traumatic death. Initially, there was a lot of denial and shock and numbing and dissociation. And I didn't really take it in. I was sort of going through the motions. It's very much feeling like I was a character in a in a sitcom, not a sitcom, a a casual, you know, like casualty, a hospital drama, and watching myself from a distance, really, which is a, a you know what happens in dissociation. Just didn't seem possible that we could go from having a perfectly normal life with lots of plans and a future, and as a couple, to suddenly, you know, me on my own and him him gone. So, the book "Languages of Lost, that I wrote came out of that, really. It was just me trying to make sense. Initially, it was me trying to make sense of what was just a completely inconceivable change. What was your
1: background before that? What, what led you to actually write the book or, or to feel confident enough to write it?
2: Yeah, I had worked in television. I was a filmmaker, a director for many years, for 17 years. So I, I had always written my script Mm-hmm. I, I was also a travel writer. I was a journalist as, as well, uh, sporadically. I had left all that behind about seven or eight years previously to, to train as a psychotherapist. But I carried on with the. Tra- I'd left telly behind, but I carried on as a travel writer. So, so yeah, I was a ex filmmaker, journalist, yes. psychotherapist, which is sort of an odd combination, but it turns out to be. The combination of things that I needed to be able to write a book that gave me the sort of, I suppose, the experience of working in documentaries that I was able to bring my own experience in, the therapeutic knowledge to be able to then have a reflection on and a a sort of an observer status as to what might be going on from a theoretical perspective, plus the sort of the journalistic skills to sort of get that down. So it was a weird combination of things that led to me writing the book. Yeah. And interestingly, you know,
1: your, your background as a travel writer, because we often hear about the, the journey of the stages of grief, if you like, which kind of starts with the initial shock and then you get the grief and then you get the anger and the, and the depression and, you know, maybe gradually the acceptance. I don't know. What's, what's your take on that? And and does it really go through those stages? Can everybody expect to feel those stages?
2: Well, again, this is one of the reasons why I wrote the book, because I feel like there's definitely those five famous stages, they're in there. I mean, I I definitely had all those experiences. But what I felt was that that theory, and there were many other grief theories, that's just the sort of the most famous one. I just felt it didn't really sort of touch the sides of what I was feeling, of the enormity of what I was feeling. It felt very limiting. It felt very linear. Even the word stages makes it sound like a path and a journey and you kind of get through it and, and the fact that acceptance was at the end of it I mean there is a sort of acceptance there has to be however I think that's a very ambiguous word that can acceptance can mean all sorts of things so that's partly why I called it languages plural of loss because I felt that we have to be so careful with the language that we choose because it can mean different things for different people and there's so many different ways of describing it so We use various metaphors, visualizations and other ways, dreams, dream language, um, to try and describe my journey, which in itself can be problematic to some, that, that that word. So I tend to use words more like shapes of grief rather than stages of grief because they come back. They're not linear, you know, they swirl around and you will go in and out of them and they still come back. I mean, I'm three and a half years on and, you know, I still sometimes get whacked, (laughs) but. Yeah, by them. So I find words and language quite interesting around
1: of Yeah. I've got a friend who, who was bereaved a few years ago. She lost her husband relatively quickly. And she does say that. She says that, you know, she will suddenly be hit by something and it will come back with a jolt I mean, out of the blue. Something might, you know, take her back to a moment or remind her. Whereas she thinks and, you know, she's been acting as if everything is, you know, not quite back to normal, but she's, you know, coping well. And then all of a sudden she'll be kind of blindsided by something coming in.
2: Yeah, and I think blindsided is, is a really good word because when it happens, it feels like no time has passed. And you just feel like you're right back there at the beginning. And it feels as intense, which is why I think people can get a bit thrown by the fact that I I ought to be over this by now or I'm be right. different. But I think I, I think those things just keep happening, and you just kind of hope that they are less intense and less frequent, and that you recognise them better, and you have better ways of dealing with them, so you're not quite floored, or at least floored for quite so long, or you understand that that it will pass.
1: You write about is it William Warden's grief theory, and the four tasks that have to be completed to get through grief. So what are these tasks?
2: So Warden's four tasks are much harder to remember than Kubler-Ross's five stages, which is why I think she's kind of passed into common parlance more. But they're very similar. So the tasks are, the first one is accept the reality of the loss, which is very similar to denial. The second one is work through the pain of the grief, which again is similar to her saying that you're going to have anger and depression and feelings around it. The third one is adjust to an environment in which the deceased is missing, which I guess is about maybe the bargaining stage of kubler else. It's a bit like, okay, I have to somehow reshift my thinking. I have to somehow get on board yeah. with the fact that my environment is different and I can't go back and this is the new reality. And then the fourth one is the wordiest of all. It is to find an enduring connection with the deceased while embarking on a new life. Now, that one, I think, comes a bit closer to what some of the other theories, which maybe I, I can talk about in a minute, mm. um, uh, touch upon, which is that you do have to continue. You do have to find what I think you know people also call acceptance, but you have to do it knowing that the person was in your life. It's not about what the old sort of Freudian theories might have said, which is, work through it, get over it, shut the door, they're dead to you and move you. on. It's much more realising mm. that you, they're still with you and that the experience both of having them and of having lost them has fundamentally changed you. You can't go back, you can only go forward with that new you and that new experience on board as, as well. So it's a mm. bit more complex, but that it needs to be. And the the other couple of theories that I talk about are more complex still. But again, they need to be because it's not as simple as just saying, you know, bit of anger, bit of depression, bit of bargaining, accept, done.
1: <laughs> yes. Were there any in particular that resonated with you that you personally found really helpful?
2: Well, my way of describing it was to not really use those tasks, like all the stages. Like I said, they all, I felt, I could feel that they were there, they were present. But what I did in the book was my chapters, I suppose, correspond to my my shapes, my kind of path. And my. it was a very, I used visualization, it was more based on what I experienced. So my first chapter So I call implosion because that's what it was like. The world just imploded. And I describe, because little aside, I don't, in the book, I don't only talk about the grief theories. I talk about therapeutic theory in general because I think grief isn't separate to real life. It is real life. So all the different therapeutic ways of looking at how we are and how we've come to be and how we cope with life is based on so many factors and that is going to impact how we cope with our grief as well so we can't just put our normal personalities aside and say okay so this is what you're going to be in grief because all all of your personality traits are going to affect how you do your own version of grief there's a theory that calls attachment theory which says that how we are parented in the first couple of years of life how we attach to our caregivers will affect all subsequent relationships and it also says that we need to be able to explore our lives in every sense of that word. We need to have a secure base. So my visualization, so it's a very long-winded way of explaining my my progression, is that my secure base was built. So I have this image of this huge shipping tanker that was sailing merrily across the ocean, and it was solid, and it was absolutely impenetrable, and then that imploded. So the safe ship that was Bill and I imploded that's that's my first chapter heading which is implosion and that's a noun after that they're all verbs again because I feel that grief's constantly shifting and changing and so you can't have a noun that says now you're going through this it's a verb to say it's an ongoing evolving shape-shifting thing so the second chapter I call uh, scattering. And that I liken to being in this ocean. The ship's exploded. I'm in this sort of dark, deadly ocean. And all around me, the shards of what was the tanker are now raining down on me and sort of like um, piercing wow everything is scattered because when you lose somebody so close to you, you also lose a part of yourself. You lose your future, you lose who you were with them, you lose your sense of safety. And so it did feel like flailing around. And in fact, flailing is my third heading. So I get implosion, scattering, flailing. And the flailing is you sort of come back from under the the depths where you feel that you're drowning. You're sort of flailing about. You're trying to grab all these little bits of detritus and make them into a little bit of a raft that you can then hang on to to somehow get you back. Then, where did I, again, I'm, my memory is a colleague. So then from scattering, I, um, scattering, flailing, floating. So you gather what little bits of yourself and your life and your friends that you can. You create a little bit of a raft and then you're floating. And it's like, oh, I can read them. I'm no longer being constantly buffeted by the waves. But it's still a very meager existence. So then eventually you start to think, okay, can I do more than just float? And my next chapter title was balancing because I felt that I, that more adequately to me describes how you do sort of go in and out of it. A lot of the time you feel, oh, okay, you know, I've got this. I'm on, I'm on this sort of fairly stable raft. I can go out. I can see my friends. I can maybe go back to work, but always that danger that you're going to fall back in you don't have a secure base it's a very wobbly base from balancing i go to sailing and that's when you've kind of created the raft has become more of a sort of a sailing boat so you feel safer you've got your friends you've got your work you've got your life back a little bit but you're still on an ocean you're still not on solid ground you're, yeah, still- you're
1: not on an ocean liner are you, you you've got no. you've got your sail up you're still a bit vulnerable
2: Exactly. And you still know that, you know, a storm could come, that it gets seasick, you get seasick, it gets rocky. But you also have lovely lot days when you can, you know, lie on the deck with the gin and tonic and say, Do you know what, life's good. It's, it can, it's not the same. You know, it can be great. And then I did it for ages over my final chapter, because in many ways it would have been quite neat to ha- call it landing and feeling like, right, I've reached reached shore. And I thought, no, that is too neat, because as we just talked about, you never really do reach solid ground. So I called it swimming, because I felt that that gave a sense of, you can feel okay, you can feel that okay most of the time, you can have a nice life, you can, you know, find joy again, which mm-hmm. is important as well, I think you do have to find joy again. And you can also choose to get back in the water. You can go back in and you can swim and feel empowered within that mass of feelings. But you can touch back in them without feeling like they're going to drown you. But you can say, no, I can go back. I can revisit the pain and how much I felt for Bill and how amazing he was and how sad I am and how much I miss him. But I'm choosing to do that knowing that I can get myself back out again and that I can swim through it rather than be drowned I yes. So I'm sorry that was an incredibly long
1: answer. No, I I love it. I love your analogies. And I was just thinking as I was listening to you talk whether these are the same principles that could be helpful for other kinds of loss. So, for example, people who may have been dumped by their spouse and suddenly find themselves divorced, or made redundant after a lifetime of working for the same firm. You know, do you think these same principles could apply?
2: I, th- I think that's a really good point, And I think they absolutely could. I think loss is loss. And in fact, I've had a couple of divorced friends say exactly that, that they really described what they went through, um, the, their shapes of, of coping with the loss. And yeah, job loss and all of those things, loss of your youth, <laughs> you know, loss yes. of your oh, gosh. <laughs> loss of going off to university. I mean, with, you yeah. know, the loss. This showed us anything. Losses are, you know, innumerable and constant and always with us. So and Yes,
1: and, and will happen to all of us. We will all lose. We will all lose friends, family, situations. You know, life is ever-changing. Let's talk a little bit about some of the physical changes that can happen. You know, what's going on within our central nervous system, for example, during such a big trauma as grief?
2: When we are faced with any sort of trauma, and yes, grief is, and especially traumatic loss, is we switch into our trauma response, which is the fight-flight-freeze response, which is when our nervous system – pretty much shuts down everything that isn't to do with survival so we go into the mode that is most going to keep us alive which is actually a very primeval response we resort to our what's called our limbic brain before the neocortex the thinking brain was developed the limbic brain was the thing that got us to like run away from the the lion or now gets us to jump out of the way of a, a speeding car. And that's what, it's a physiological response. We can't choose to go into it. Our bodies, our limbic brain, our nervous system takes us there. And it's really helpful because it does mean that we kind of pull back from danger. Um, But it does mean that a lot of other things shut down, which is why get very foggy Your your brain's not thinking right you do strange things you feel very confused your memory goes you often don't eat you don't sleep because all of those non-essential functions are going into just sort of keeping your heart going really which is great in the moment but what happens so often is that that in the moment instant life-saving response doesn't switch off carries on and we carry on responding as though we're still in that moment of of trauma. And that's when it leads to all sorts of, you know, your immune system will then get compromised, you'll get aches and pains, you'll get a bad back, you might, you know, have heart problems, you might have a stress. I mean, there's so many ways in which it's going to come out physically. And the more this is why it's really important to try and express and go and work with your feelings when you can. And maybe you need a professional or maybe you need you know, supportive friends to help you do that. No matter how much you might want to just busy yourself with, okay, right, let's just keep going and let's just get back to work. It is important because the body never forgets. The body is storing the things that the brain doesn't want to let us think about. So it will come out, it will come out in your skin, it will come out in your aches and pains, it will come out in not
1: sleeping. You talk in the book about dealers and feelers. Is that related to that?
2: Yes. I mean, dealers and feelers is a very shorthand way of describing sort of two sets of people. And obviously, we are all many, many things. And this is very reductionist. But we do often tend in to either be somebody who can deal but can't feel or somebody who can feel but can't deal. I was a dealer. I am a dealer. Bill was a, a, a feeler. So, And that often happens. People are kind of drawn to do the thing that you can't. So I'm very good at coping. I'm very good at going, right. Let's solve this. What needs to be done? Let's just keep busy. Let's not think about it. Ignore all these messages of, sort of pain and sadness and anger and just kind of say, "Nope, don't need to think about them, which makes you very good in a crisis, but does mean, as I say, kind of suppressing, suppressing, suppressing. Billy was a feeler, so he was very good at emoting and being warm and being really kind of in touch with what he was feeling. But it did mean that in a crisis, he often would, you know, run around a bit like a headless chicken and not really know how to cope because he was so busy emoting and feeling. And neither one is better. What we both need is to have a little bit of the other. Ideally, we manage to integrate that in ourselves. We don't just outsource it to our partner, although that can happen quite a lot. So, as a therapist, when I see people that are completely up in their heads, the dealers, and I obviously relate to them better, I have to constantly say, "What's the feeling? What are you feeling about this? You know, can you really just let yourself go with the sadness, go with the anger?" Whereas the feelers who sit there, sort of weeping or shouting or stamping their feet, my role as a therapist then is to say, "Okay, let's just think about this. Can we can we think about what feelings feel so?" so overwhelming why you can't pull yourself together can we think about what's going on and help them to reclaim some of their more cognitive function so it's about having access to both because they're both really useful sets of information but not when we only rely on them at the expense of the other information that because that's good too
1: Hello, Liz here. This is just your notice to pop the kettle on and make a quick cup of tea. We are pausing for a short ad break and we'll be back in just a moment to hear more from Sasha.
0: Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify.
1: Can we go back to some of the practicalities now? For example, how did you find Bill's funeral? I mean, suddenly you are plunged into a whole new experience. And I don't know about you, but I haven't had to plan somebody's funeral. So that whole process, you know, do you you think that process of planning a funeral and attending a funeral helps with the grieving process? And, And how was it for you?
2: Yeah, I mean, it absolutely did, and that's why you know my heart goes out to all those people that have lost people during COVID and haven't been able to do that. I mean, I think over the, over the last year, people have adapted really well and found ways to you know do it online, for it not to feel like a, 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 a poor substitute. But yes, I think in in normal times, and for me, the funeral was really helpful. It gives you a focus. It keeps you connected. It, you feel like in those early weeks, I think Bill's funeral was three weeks after his death. It gives you some way of feeling like you're still doing something for them. You're still acting on their behalf. You are still helping them when actually you can't, obviously, but you need that kind of illusion that I'm doing this for you. I'm going to give you the absolute best thing I can give you. It keeps you thinking about them. It keeps you kind of going back through the photos and the music and the memories and the stories. It keeps you connected their friends, you kind of get stories coming in from other people, you, you get to talk about them the whole time, you get to really kind of be with who they were. Um, and then you have a fantastic day of just celebrating them and emoting together and seeing how much other people were impacted, which I think is really important as well as to know that they mattered to somebody else, to know that them dying affects and impacts someone else. As well, because it it just feels yes they 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 were here they were real they 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 meant something. Um,
1: Gosh, the, the the whole impact. You're right of all those people who haven't been able to have funerals this past year. You know, during pandemic times, is is so tragic, isn't it? And and maybe we should be thinking. Maybe that's an interesting message to anybody listening in that situation to maybe have a memorial service. Or something you know to recognize that your your grief is still there and, and it's not you know needn't be closed off, we can actually you know bring all those joyful moments and memories perhaps back to the fore for, for a new focus you know when when things are a bit easier in society
2: yeah, absolutely, and I think um I mean i've been to a couple of online memorials for for people that have died, and they can be really lovely and yes you you can do some of the things that you would normally do in real life, you can have zoom dinners and zoom sharings and and that kind of thing not the same <laughs> it's not the same and i think you know luckily soon we hope we hope can then have all those memorials all those you know walks to their favorite place all those parties all those meals or whatever it, it it's meaningful and we do I think we need them so I think there's going to be a lot a lot lot of celebrating coming up
1: yeah well I do hope so I mean in the book you talk about the importance of breaking down these taboos that we have in society we don't talk about death we don't talk about grief and you know how important do you think it is to start opening up this conversation
2: even more I think it's massively important. And again, it's why I called the book Languages of Loss because we need to find ways of talking about it and we need to remove the stigma because otherwise it does just, everyone feels a bit like, oh, you know, I have my little couple of weeks and my my funeral and I talk about I, I need to shut it down now. And actually, as I've said, the more you can talk about it, the more you can keep that person alive, the more you can say, actually, I'm just having a really bad day, even if it is three years on. It will help other people understand when it happens to them, that they're not weird I mean I've had clients come to me and say things like oh I just there's something wrong with me I can't get over my dad's dead and I'll say well how long ago did he done and they'll say oh a couple of weeks like of course you know you need to keep talking but some, we've got this notion that there's a time limit on it and then also people are so afraid to talk to us about it in case it makes us more upset but it's like we're upset anyway what you're doing is it's an outlet to get that out there. It's not like, oh, I've completely forgotten he died, and now you've mentioned it, and now I remember again. You know, it's, so, it's lovely to hear people talk about the person that you loved, and it's it's so
1: you know. I, I think as somebody who wants to talk to those who've been bereaved and and be helpful, I you know I I find myself hesitant because I don't know whether it's going to open up something that's too painful or I feel awkward and, you know, what are the best ways do you think for friends and family to, to have those conversations and to, to offer support the best kind of support?
2: Yeah. Well, I think, you know, first of all, it is to recognize that it is the hardest job in the world is to talk to somebody about their bereavement. And it is, it is awkward and it is difficult. And to acknowledge that and to kind of, you know, have some compassion for yourself around that, that you're trying to do a very difficult thing. I would say just be really open and honest and say to the person, do you want to talk? Because they might not always, you know, I'm saying, well, everybody wants to talk all the time. Not everybody does want to talk at the time. So just say, would you like to talk about it? So give them that option. Um, express condolences and say, you know, what is it you, you would like to talk about really? Can I tell you some stories about the person? Can I ask you how you're feeling? You know, can I tell you that I feel really sad? So just offer, offer it as a possibility. But one of the other things that I do in the book is I do talk about that, um, question that everybody says, you know, what, what, what can I do? Because people do generally want, to help, And it's a really hard one to answer. So I slightly glibly wrote down a few sort of suggestions of what you can do. And ironically, it's the thing that so many people, it's the thing that most people come back and say, oh, I really like the bit where you said how to help a grieving friend. And it, that just made me realize how much hunger there is out there to know and how much fear there is to, to um, but basically what it all boils down to is um just be alongside them. You can't solve it. You can't take it away. You can't make it better. So just be with them and say, look, if you want to have a laugh and forget about it, I'm here for you to do that. If you want to cry and be really upset and use my shoulder, I can be that. If you want me to just listen, I can do that. If you want me to just talk, I can do that. And just kind of be with them and say, yeah, this is pretty rubbish, isn't it? This is pretty awful and just... and not try and make it better because you can't you can't no that that whole empathy I guess is just knowing that somebody
1: is there for you and thinking about you actually that whole human compassion um but you write in the book also about humor and and humor on grief what what I mean how can we make light of it and you know why do you think that humor is important in all of this to have a bit of a laugh
2: yeah well I think I'm not sure that we can make light of it, but I think when those moments appear to you, you know, go with them. I think it's very hard to force somebody to laugh when they're in the midst of grief. But if you can keep... And again, like I said, I described her right at the beginning as somebody who has very, you know, dry observational humor. So I would find myself just thinking, oh, he would have loved this. You know, when the solicitor's being really clumsy or there's a mistake know by the organist in the funeral I just think Bill would have loved the fact that this was all you know going a bit wobbly or or a bit you know a bit British and you know even just finding you know seeing people being really awkward in or not wanting to make eye contact and being able to sort of say oh gosh we're all being so British about this aren't we or do you know what what, whatever it is so I think that the moments are there and there are some genuine funny moments when people are trying to do the right thing and, you know, getting it slightly um wrong. I guess what you're saying is that, that you've got permission to laugh. Yes. And I think it's really important to laugh. I, I really do because it's what makes life worth living. And that's a really hard thing to hang on to in the depths of your grief. It's like, well, why, why am I even bothering carrying on without that? And then you think, no, you know, life can be good. And me laughing is celebrating his love of humour. It's not me saying, oh, I feel better now, and isn't this funny? It's saying the sadness has to be counteracted with some fun and some laughter. Um, I did actually sit and watch some comedies, because I just thought after a day of just like doom and gloom, and I just can't bear it, it's all too agonising. I put a goggle box on or, or something, and I laughing. And yet you do have moments of feeling guilty. How can I be laughing at this? No, I, I have to or I can't go back into another day, another several hours of just crying in the agony. I've got to somehow step aside from it, even if just for a few moments. And laughter, I think, is the quickest way of, of doing that. You
1: now run workshops on grief. So what are the basic sort of, what's the basic journey? Is there a process? Obviously, it's going to be very individualized, but is there a certain journey that you would take grievers on with your workshops?
2: Um, well, to be honest, the workshops that I teach are for therapists who work with grievers. I, I've been thinking about possibly doing some that are directed at the grievers themselves, but, but so what I've been doing in them is, to use different ways of allowing people to get at their grief. It's about finding ways to express your grief. So um, there's all sorts of things that I do over the course of the day with the the therapists that that they can do with their clients. So it's things like journaling. That's really important. And it was me journaling that sort of led to me writing the book, ultimately, trying to get your feelings down on paper. Or if you're not good with words or you don't like words, you know, you can... Get the paints out. Try and, you know, depict in art or in music. So find a creative way to somehow express what you are feeling. And if you're really not creative in any way at all, you know, get gardening or go to an art gallery. Go, you know, listen to some music. Try and find something or poetry, something that can somehow express for you what you can't express because it is really hard to articulate such huge emotions whereas you can look at a painting and go that's it that's how I feel or listen to some music and say they're saying it for me or a poet is saying it for me so there's the sort of the creative side of doing an activity that gets you out of that thinking brain that we all know if we do some art or some music it's not coming from that same left brain left rational brain Move- really important and whatever that means to you whether it is just a gentle walk whether it's like running it out whether it's yoga whether it's swimming you know just find some way of dissipating those stress hormones that were generated in the moment of trauma getting them out dance if dance it doesn't have to be like structured exercise so some sort of physical release is really really helpful being in nature i mean just getting out all the research now is saying that any connection and again over this last year i think a lot of us have discovered that anyway through our enforced entrapment just getting out into you know by the sea or into a park or into your garden or just seeing something green and connecting with nature cuddling your pets you know back in the old days cuddling your friends getting some kind of you know sensations and of touch reawakening your senses via smells and candles and you know again nature or cooking the sensation of touch through facials and massages and cuddling people when we could or cuddling our cats when we when we can't listening to sounds you know listening to music listening to birdsong um just try and get those sensations awakened again because we Again, part of the trauma response because everything gets deadened. We don't want to be touched. Everything sort of like gets smaller and drier and more shriveled up and more clenched. And it's trying to sort of come back to life again. It's sort of like, yes, I'm here. I'm breathing. I'm opening to the world again. So it's those sort of things, really. In fact, I should, I'm not meant to be talking about this because I'm talking about languages of loss, but I've actually got another book that's coming out in June. I was going to ask you,
1: what's next for you? Because this is, this has been such an extraordinary and positive journey. What is next?
2: Yeah, well, it's, it's a new book called A Grief Companion, which I wrote in the first lockdown and it pretty much came out of what I explained just now about how people responded to the, here's a list of things you can do for your grieving friends. I realized that there was such a hunger for practical advice, which is very hard to get because everybody's grief journey is different and what everybody needs and wants is different. But I realized how much people wanted. And then the book came out at the beginning of lockdown and I was doing a lot of interviews and press and everyone was like, "Right, it's COVID, it's lockdown, we're all suffering loss. What are the top five tips? And I thought... You can't boil it down into five tips, but again, it just made me realize how much people kind of want some sort of guidebook. So A Grief Companion is is a book full of suggestions. It's not saying this will work because who knows what work even means and what works for some won't work for others. But there's a, just a plethora of examples of, of things that you might find are useful to do in those early months when you can't think straight, when your world has imploded, when you just feel like you can't get out of bed or that you can't stop being completely busy, you know, whatever version it, it takes. So that's, um, yeah, that's coming out in June. It's, a, you know, a sort of a companion piece to the languages of this.
1: Wonderful. Well, I wish you huge success with it. It actually sounds as though both books actually are the kind of essential books that we all need on our bookshelves so that we've got them to hand because we never know when we might need them and actually being prepared, you know, to read about the languages of loss and how we can apply that to so many different things in our lives and then actually have something there as the emergency guide for when we need it could be so helpful. Sasha, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to chat and I'm really looking forward to reading the new one as well.
2: Oh, great. And thank you for having me. It's been lovely being able to talk to you.
1: And that is it for today's episode. Many thanks again to Sasha for sharing her experience so honestly and thoughtfully. And as always, you will find more information, links and resources over on Lizarwellbeing.com. I will be back next Friday with more wellness wisdom. But this week, I will finish with words spoken by Queen Elizabeth II. She said, we are all just passing through. Our purpose here is to learn grow and love and then we return home and with that i leave you this week to go well bye-bye the lizelle Wellbeing show is presented by me lizelle and is a fresh air production with thanks to my producers ellie smith and sarah moore
0: small details are big surfaces tight corners are odd shapes flat rounded textured or tall